Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, this is Bob Hutchins, and the human on the other end of this conversation today is Kate O'Neill. Kate and I go back here in Nashville several years. Back in the day, early tech uh, marketing, advertising days, our paths crossed quite frequently, um, but we've lost touch for a while and reconnected, and I'm really excited to bring you the conversation today. So before we begin, I just want to read her bio. Kate's prior roles included creating the first content management role at Netflix as one of the first 100 employees, also developing Toshiba America's first intranet, and leading cutting-edge experience optimization for magazines.com, and she was the founder of MetaMarketer, a first-of-its-kind digital strategy analytics, and experience optimization agency. She's also authored five books, including her latest, Future So Bright, which we're going to talk about today. Kate's insights and expertise have been featured in Wired, CMO.com, USA Today, and many other outlets. She's been featured and quoted in a variety of national and international media, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Wired, NPR, NBC News, and BBC World News. In 2020, She was named to the Thinkers 50 Radar, a global ranking of top management thinkers. She regularly keynotes industry events advocating for humanity's role in an increasingly tech-driven future. Her world-leading clients have included Google, Adobe, IBM, Yale University in the city of Amsterdam, and the United Nations. And her latest book, again, A Future So Bright, How Strategic Optimism and Meaningful Innovation Can Restore Our Humanity and Save the World. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Bob. It's good to talk with you. Good to be here. Good to hear that wonderful long bio. Thank you for (laughs) indulging me with my long bio. (laughs) Well, you know, as I was reading through it, I was thinking that's actually a shorter one. The, the, there's so much great info and I really think it's important for people to understand your varied background. So I was really struggling on, well, if I cut that out, that's important. So (laughs) yeah, join the club. It's, It's hard, man. It's hard to edit headed a life. You know, I think that's, you, you talk about what the, the human voice, you know, sort of concept is. And I, I think we all have such interesting stories. It's, it's such an interesting exercise to try to, you know, edit your narrative down to something that, that coheres in a, a 140 words or something. <laughs> yeah. And you constantly, if you're not careful, you've got to update it. I know. And I, mm-hmm. I go back and I look at bios that were written just four or five years ago. And I said, Oh, is that the same person? And right. what do I want to remove things? Do I want to add things that have happened since then? It's, it's always, it's definitely a challenge. Well, you've done a lot in the last four or five years. So yeah, I mean, and I think for all of us, especially, I mean, think what the last four or five years have been in the world. So <laughs> these yeah. four or five years matter in terms of updating what we know about ourselves and about the world. Yeah. I guess all of us have to, to edit quite a bit based on the last couple of years. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So in reading your latest book, Kate, I love it. I love the theme of it. You and I share a lot about tech optimism. I wrote a book back in 2016, and the subtitle was Using Digital Media to Restore Culture and Better Our World. And I noticed that that your your book, Future So Bright, is about restoring humanity and having a, a positive optimism. So we're going to jump right into it. One of the one of the terms that really drew me to your book and reaching back out to you is this term that that you've coined strategic optimism. 
What is strategic optimism exactly? Well, I think of strategic optimism as both a model and a mindset. I think of it as uh, an idea that you can think about the the world in terms of you know what's what's likely to happen that's that's bad or that you you would not like to happen, and you can think of what's likely to happen or what's possible to happen that's good or that you would like to happen. And I think very often we tend to think only about how to keep the bad stuff from happening, and that tends to I think it doesn't take a lot of examination to to recognize that if you only expend your energy on controlling the negative from happening, you're really not living up to the potential on the positive side, you know, what could happen. So I think one of the, one of the models that I, I talk about in the book is that we, we so often talk about the future in terms of this dichotomy of dystopia versus utopia. And, uh, you know, that, that feels like a very unhealthy and unproductive and unuseful kind of dichotomy. And in fact, we know that actually utopia is not realistically on the table. So we're really only talking about shades of dystopia. So I think this is an opportunity to reclaim something that's more inclusive, more holistic, more you know realistic, and that moves us toward thinking about what's truly possible while mitigating the risks and harms of what could go wrong, but leaning our efforts and our energy into what could go right and really putting some some time and thought into how do we actually achieve what we want to see happen rather than only talking about avoiding what we don't want to see happen. Yeah, I love that. I've spoken a little bit on the program with or on the podcast with guests about this idea of optimism. And uh, there's a lot of talk recently, especially in the context of COVID and, and the pandemic of this toxic optimism, mm -hmm. toxic positivity. And I love when people like yourself bring optimism to the table and talk about it in new, more nuanced ways. Because I, I do think that there's opportunity right now. I know Viktor Frankl in some of his writings, Man's Search for Meeting, talked about tragic optimism. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. As you think through, you know, your writing of this book probably wrote a lot of it right before the pandemic. I don't know for sure. But as you think through strategic optimism and the way you just explained it, you know, tragic optimism says even in the face of things that are horrible and nothing to look forward to the fact that they that the human experience exists at all that we're that we are humans that that being alive should give us a reason to find hope in and of itself and and I as I was reading through your book and when you talk about strategic optimism in that context it kept coming up it's like having optimism just for optimism's sake can actually be kind of shallow on, on some level, but yet this, this idea of being strategic, it seems so applicable right now in the world that we find ourselves in. Does that ring any bells with you or is there anything you can say more about in that context? Oh boy, could I say more? <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole lineage of philosophy uh, that relates to optimism and relates to, you know, everything that you're talking about there. And I, I feel like what, what is true for me, what is, what is, always anchoring for me is that throughout my life, my entire conscious life, I've been drawn to the notion of meaning. Meaning mm -hmm. is the central concept that, that anchors my work. It's what I consider to be at the core of the human condition. 
Uh, and it, of course, it is really uh, central to Viktor Frankl's work too. So, you know, when he talks about tragic optimism and, and the precious human experience, he's also talking so much about, you know, his, his title of his most profound work is Man's Search for Meaning. You know, meaning is central to his work too. But I think what's interesting to me about meaning is that it became a, a topic that, that that drew me when I was a child and I became interested in languages. You and I talked actually before we started recording uh, about languages and, and learning different languages. It's been a hobby of mine since I was very, very young. And I think what, what attracted me was the idea that I learned, as soon as I realized that, you know, you could be looking at an object like a book and you would call it book in English, but you would call it, you know, Buch in German or Liva in France, in French or Kniga in Russian. You know, you, you have all these different terms, but you're still fundamentally holding the object. The object hasn't been changed by what you've labeled it. And that gave me the insight early on that there was this, you know, sort of fundamental idea of the thing itself. And then how we talk about or think about or abstract the communication about the thing. And that's been at the core of so much of, of what I've been about. But, you know, to bring this back to, you know, what you're talking about with optimism and, and positivity and so on, I think what, what came, what became very central for me in working on this book was that I think meaningful experience is really important to the, the work of business and the work of technology development. And I think that we have the opportunity to be strategically optimistic, as I say, in how we how we move forward into the future, how we build the technologies that can help us solve human experiences, problems for humanity at scale, you know, climate, climate crisis kinds of related problems and problems of inequality and inequity, climate problems relating to misinformation and disinformation. And, and I think it's really important that we are positive about those in terms of the opportunity we know we have to solve them while not being deluded into believing that simply being positive is going to solve those problems. <laughs> we need a strategy, we need a plan. So that's where I think both parts of that, you know, the strategic optimism really complement one another. There's no reason not to be optimistic. We have incredible tools at our disposal. Uh, and as long as we stay centered on what we can do that will actually provide more meaningful experiences for people, that we can actually add to the meaning that humanity experiences, then I think that we're moving in the right direction. And it's simply about using those tools well and using them with a strategy. Yeah, so well said. I love, I love the idea of, of using optimism and tools, as you said, with a strategy. A strategy, in my mind, has always been defined really simply. What you're going to do how you're going to do it, and how do you measure what you just did? Mm -hmm. And and I I love I love the idea of tying that to optimism because optimism seems so ethereal, and when we put it in context of applying it to some of these big ideas that you talked about, it's just it's not just wishing that climate change we can fix it. It's not just wishing that we can get get through the pandemic. It's not just wishing and and putting a positive spin, but actually having hope and optimism because we can figure out how we're going to do it, what we're going to do and how we're going to measure it. I love that. I love that whole idea. Yeah. The, the central driving question of my work these last number of years, I, I don't know how many years, but, but in it's reflected in my last two to sort of three books is how can we make the best futures for the most people? 
Mm. And of course, that is a fundamentally optimistic question, but you can't ask that question realistically. You can't expect to answer that question realistically without strategy, without mm. you know the, the questions that you articulated about how you're actually going to get there, what you're going to do, and the, the, the time frame, the measurement, the, all of the things that, that you know go into actual strategic planning. But, but I think the, the, the strategic visioning piece needs to be complemented by the optimism and the, the boldness to be able to envision something that could actually happen that's that's better than what we're currently experiencing, that's better than what we're dealing with now. That's where we head into innovation that actually matters. Mm. Uh, you know, that's that's where we that's how we get there. It, otherwise, we're just you know building on technology for technology's sake, or we're just doing you know something because it's possible because the technology has led us there, and that's hundred percent the wrong direction. <laughs> you know, I think right. one of the things that I find so often when I'm working with executives around digital transformation is that their assumption is we're going to start by talking about technology. Mm. And we're absolutely not going to start by talking about technology. We're going to start by talking about humanity and about human experience and what the organization's purpose is from a very human centric place. Like why does the company even exist at all? What are you trying to do? What, you know, what's going to make this something that you're proud to have built, you know, take it back to really human fundamental ideas and then we can build all the way out through you know values and and culture and brand and experiences then to modeling and data what we need to know then to amplifying through technology what we want to accelerate and grow and scale but never are we going to start by saying you know cloud's a big trend these days <laughs> are we going to move everything to the cloud like we're not going to move everything to the cloud without having considered why we're moving to the cloud yeah, your one of your subtitles and one of your chapters is innovation through a human centric lens. And uh, what you say there, the question is, what is going to matter? I think you just segued into that, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I love this is where our our I think our life's passions overlap in that people want to get hung up, like you said, on the tech and adopt the tech for the sake of the tech versus. What are the underlying principles, like you say, that you use the word human-centric, that aren't going to change necessarily, that stand the test of time? And then how does that equip us to, to bolster that, to grow that, to enhance that, to, to further that? But I, I just find it's so easy for those of us who are live and breathe a technology and internet and, and innovation to get focused on the wrong thing. And, and I love that you brought it back to, to the human side. Do you find that that connects and resonates with the companies and the leaders that you speak with? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, I, I think it it very much does. I think all humans like to be reminded of their humanity. I think it's at some level. It's a it's a really common phenomenon that I'll be talking to, doing a keynote for a conference uh, that's all attended by, you know, CEOs or CIOs or some executive role, <clears throat> and I'll have people come up to me after, and the the most common thing I hear is, I, I'm so glad that you gave this presentation because you gave me the vocabulary to go and have this conversation with my team, with my C-suite, with my board, whatever the the case may be. And I think that's what so many of us feel like we're we're missing. We're missing the framework, the vocabulary, the the examples, you know, the kind of the richness of being able to talk about 
what we intuit must be possible, right? Instead of talking about, you know, how are we going to disrupt and build disruptive technologies and so on, disruptive technology is an interesting conversation. And certainly I think there's a role for the kind of, of development of technology experimentation and research that is led purely by curiosity. Like that, there's a role for that. That's basically science. That's a scientific model. Like you're, of course, you're going to follow curiosity into new places. But in order to apply any of that, in order to figure out how you're actually going to deploy that in meaningful ways that actually solve meaningful problems and that actually bring uh, innovation into context in terms of how it benefits humanity, you have to be able to answer why questions. You have to be able to say what your company is trying to do fundamentally, and then what people outside your company are trying to do that you help them do, and then find a way to talk about the technology in terms of that alignment, in mm -hmm. terms of how you're actually helping solve that problem. And then if you can do that, then great, you're on, you're on the way, go solve the cloud problem, <laughs> go bring AI into the conversation, you know, talk about IOT, robots, whatever you want. It's great. I think that those kinds of things are, are there, there's a ton of opportunity. As you saw in the book, I, I spent a great deal of time talking about the opportunity for AI and climate change action, for example, uh, you know, mitigating climate change through AI proofs of concept. So I, I believe fundamentally that emerging technology can help solve human problems at scale. I just think we have to be very intentional about how we're how we're approaching the technology and which direction we're coming from. I think we need to be coming from a place that starts with the human in in perspective before we move to the technology. Yeah, I I write and talk and research a lot on this intersection of a positive tomorrow because of technology and uh, a warning and the damages that it can bring. And, I, and I'm wondering, and I'm just unpacking this in my mind as, as you're speaking, Kate, that I think we run into some real problems when we put the technology before the human-centric lens and we run to the technology. And I'm thinking of Frances Haugen and, and the things that, that she has, has leaked at Facebook, which all of us, or many of us has, have intuitively known for quite some time. And Tristan Harris with The Social Dilemma about how, hey, maybe no one started out and his intention was to bring harm to the psyche of certain uh, human individuals. But what we found is by pushing the technology and focusing on the technology, and in this case, social media, it can have profound effects. And maybe we need to step back and take a look and say, okay, what is the best way forward for the human and the human psyche, whatever that may be, problem might be addressing. It, it, what was your thoughts as you've kind of digested the last year or so with, with the whole Facebook leaks? Oh, well, I mean, that, that's been something that I've been fairly close to for the last few years. And, and I've interviewed several people on my show, The Tech Humanist Show, that have been close to it as well. It's, it's something that I think it's a natural outgrowth of having the wrong incentives and, and not, not being anchored in solving meaningful problems for, for humans. I, I think if you're, if you're allowing your company to grow and your technology to scale because it's just driven by the incentive to be profitable or the incentive to grow for growth's sake. I mean, so many of the, the titles, the job titles in Silicon Valley for the last 10, 15 years have been things like growth hacker or 
you know, VP of growth. And, you know, there's, there's a lot, a lot of positive things to be said about growth. Wonderful things can be achieved through growth, uh, but growth is not, not solely a good thing. You know, you, you can have growth that is bad or that is destructive. You can have growth that is out of alignment with, hmm. you know, what you're actually trying to achieve. So it's really much more about alignment and making sure that you're bringing something useful, meaningful, purposeful, you know, intentional into, into existence and that you're incentivized at every turn to bring it more into alignment with what, what the people outside of the organization are actually trying to accomplish. That, that uh, is something that I wrote about in the book when I talked about scaling absurdity, you know, Mm -hmm. being careful about absurdity that I see this in organizations, you know, really a lot of different kinds of organizations, certainly Facebook and Uber are two of my favorite sort of counter examples, you know, examples that I, I love to hate on, but, but I mean, we've seen it in, in Amazon, we've seen it in Google, even, and they're a a recurring client of mine. We've seen it in a lot of uh, companies where there's, there's not enough attention paid to what is really how a technology or how a project relates to solving human problems. It's so much about the curiosity. I think Amazon Go is one of my favorite experience. I'm one of my favorite examples of this. And I, I, I tell this story all the time that, that people, people who have experienced Amazon Go know that it's a really extre- extremely interesting experiment where you have a grocery store that has a, a, you just scan your phone as you come in and then, you know, you, you scan your phone as you go out and you never have to go to a cash register. And that's really interesting and really cool. And yet one of the things that, that happens when you sign up in the app for the first time and you get onboarded and, you know, kind of walk through how it's all going to work is it says, um, because you don't have to, you know, you don't get charged for, or you don't uh, go to a cashier, everything that you pick up off the shelf is charged to your phone through a series of cameras and sensors and other devices. Don't take anything off the shelf for anyone else. And as soon as I say that in a, in a keynote environment, in a conference, you know, you sort of hear this low grumble, this low moan, just kind of moving through the audience. Like everyone knows why that's a red flag, like entire audiences all at the same time come to the realization, like, oh, that's going to be a problem. (laughs) And it is, it's like every single time I go to the grocery store, someone's asking me for help, or I have to ask someone to reach something for me. So the, the question is, you know, why would it not occur? to designers, to developers, to project managers, to product managers, all the way up, everyone who must have had a a hand in the process, not to question why something as fundamental to the human experience of grocery shopping as helping one another out is not going to be a major red flag in the process and why they allowed that to come all the way through to production to now, you know, now they're scaling that out to many, many stores. I just think it's comical and it's also, it it is an example of something that could be dangerous. It happens Mm. to be more funny than dangerous in this particular example. And I I like to play with the hyperbole of it and say like, how long do you think it would be before, you know, we become socialized to the idea that we just don't help each other anymore Mm. in grocery stores. How long do you think it would be before we we became socialized to the idea that we don't help each other at all anymore in Mm. any context, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the hyperbole of that is it feels like too much. But what I love to point out is that it is the case that experience at scale does change culture. When you're designing what experience is going to be in a product or a process, you are 
encoding what you believe the cultural norms are going to be as it relates to that experience. And when you bring that to scale through the capacity and power of emerging technology through you know, AI, through automation, you're really saying, this is what experience is going to be in culture. That's what culture is going to be from now on. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I think a practical example of that, Kate, is Apple has changed the culture of human interaction with the iPhone. And I'm not talking, I'm not trying to go negative. I'm just simply saying the way that it's designed is you have to look at a screen, which you hold in your hand, which you have to swipe. And it's fascinating. I think we're awakening to this as humanity, but you can go to any restaurant. You could stop at any school bus stop. Any of these things that are normal human existences where people gather and engage on almost anywhere on the planet. And what you will find in almost anywhere you go in the world, not our kids at bus stops talking excitedly about their day or what they did over the weekend, but they're all staring down at their phone. Mm -hmm. Same thing with people at restaurants. I see a couple there staring at their phones and not engaging with one another. And I think that's a practical example. I don't know necessarily if there's a good answer for interfacing with your, your mobile phone, because I do it all the time, or a better way, I'm sure somebody at some point is going to come up with it. But that is a change in our culture, much like you said, oh, what if what if all of us in grocery stores go to this system and nobody helps anymore to reach anything? Right, right. Um, that's, that's interesting. Maybe there'll be a whole another industry for some other kind of ways to reach hard to reach things, or maybe all the shelves will come down lower. It's interesting to think well, through that yeah. whole process. The joke's on us because going to the grocery store is probably something that's not going to be for the ordinary everyday person you got very it. much longer, right? It's going to be Amazon warehouse style grocery delivery fulfillment kinds of, of systems that we already now in, in my local Whole Food, which is you know near Columbus Circle in New York, and it's it's 90 some percent sort of professional shoppers, you know, the people who are in the employ of Whole Foods and Amazon, you know, shopping to fulfill online orders. And I'm one of the weirdos who's actually there in person <laughs> doing my own grocery shopping. So yeah, so that experience won't be won't be much longer. Yeah, but my the, wife to the my my, oh, wife ahead, gets, my wife gets upset when she goes to uh, Whole Foods now <laughs> because she, like you, likes to go shopping. Mm -hmm. And Whole Foods was one of her, you know, her favorite places to go for years. But now when you go there, much of the the shelves are half empty. People are running you over trying to hurry up and because yeah. they're shoppers for someone else. And she always exits the store saying, wow, thanks, Jeff Bezos. Yeah, <laughs> you ruined the joy of it. Well, and also I think, you know, for, for me, one of the main reasons why I go is because it, it's far easier to be sustainable with the packaging. When yep. I go by myself, I can use my reusable bags for produce and my reusable bags for the groceries as a whole. We'll solve that problem. I, I believe that that's probably going to be a, a solvable thing. But in the meantime, you know, I, I'm the I'm the one getting knocked over in, in the aisles by exactly. people barreling through trying to hurriedly fulfill their orders. And and hurriedly is true. I, I actually I think a lot of those are great examples of the the incentives that are that are skewing the human experience in, in many ways too. Like the people who are working in those kinds of 
grocery fulfillment all the way through, you know, warehouse fulfillment kinds of roles mm. are driven by the tyranny of algorithms in many cases right. to have to fulfill orders at a certain pace because the algorithm says they should, you know, mm. because it's, it's, you know, been able to observe across enough employees how fast it should take. And now it's kind of like, well, you got to outperform that. So now everybody's just kind of racing each other. It's not a very pleasant future of work, but I, I think we've, we've got a lot of problems to solve when it comes to that sort of thing. And I think, you know, some of what, you know, you're talking about with the, the phone screens and, and people being uh, absorbed and looking at their phones. One of the things I think is, is possible is that, you know, we have new modalities coming into play all the time. You know, voice has been a, a major trend right. in the last several years. That that certainly seems like it stands to change the way people in, engage with screens and other devices. But also, I think I am, and you saw it in the book, I'm so excited about augmented reality. It's yeah. the one technology that I feel like has not even scratched the surface of its potential. So yeah, so I think if you've got, it, it may be you know, the sort of Google glass style glasses that someone may be wearing. It may be a totally different type of, of device and, and modality, but the idea of being able to actually engage with the world around you while you have, you know, relevant information being presented to you in a sort of removed display, um, that to me feels like the best compromise and the best way that we, we should be able to infuse, you know, meaningful, just-in-time contextual information into our physical, you know, built environments and, and our surroundings. Yeah, one of the, some of the research that I've done about that, and I'm glad you talked about the augmented reality because I I agree with you. I think there's some real positivity there as it pertains to bringing the real world and augmenting it because because again the research that that I've been doing on the way that it is now, Pete, you're actually going, you're moving between two different worlds and realities and existences. Mm -hmm. And it's why when, you know, whether it's your kid or your significant others, you're in the middle of something on your phone or on your computer and they try to talk with you, sometimes you can get irritated. And the sure. reason that you become <laughs> irritated, the reason you become irritated is because psychologically, you are in a different space and existence yeah. at that time. Yeah. You're being pulled out of that existence into another existence. And our brains aren't necessarily made to do that so smoothly because we, we're, we're locking into another place. And so I think, I think augmented reality could, could literally help to, to, to change that. So, yeah, yeah, I think so too. I mean, when you're, when you're engaging with somebody online and then, you know, someone in your physical environment, whether it's a family member or a coworker or whatever interrupts you, you, you know, the reality and pertinence of what you're doing online, they don't. And that that's where I think it's a, a challenging thing to try to interlace those worlds. But I, I think we're, we're on the verge of figuring out yes. that a bit better. And I, I think some of it has to do with with full more truly more full immersion. I'm not as much of a fan of of VR and right. you know immersive reality as I am of augmented reality. But certainly, if you're going to you know be in a, a virtual space, then be in a virtual space. You know, it seems like that's going to make it a little easier to to have meaningful interactions in those virtual environments. If you're trying to connect with a friend over a long distance over a virtual coffee you know, and, and you're being distracted by things that are in your environment, 
why not be more fully immersed in that environment? And then you can give your full attention to the, the person that you're having yeah, that virtual I agree. coffee with. I agree fully. The next two topics are some of my favorite in the idea of resisting reductive thinking. You write about that in your book. Can you talk talk about that and then unpack that a little bit? I, I have some thoughts, but but you're you're my guest, so I want to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we have a, a terrible tendency to it's it's actually a very helpful tendency in in some evolutionary ways, but it 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 doesn't play out well for us in in contemporary lives. We have a tendency to essentialize and distill things into ideas or ways of, of understanding that are unnuanced. I think we, we have a tendency to decide that something is either black or white, you know, it's either uh, good or it's bad. And we, we, we don't tend to look at the fullness of what's, what the truth of, of a matter is. And, and I think some of that is uh, part of how we get ourselves into the mess of the partisanship and the the difficulty we have in connecting with one another across ideological and political lines. Mm -hmm. I think some of it has to do like because because I mean you can absolutely be passionate about your politics and ideology and still allow for the possibility that someone else who's passionate about their politics and ideology, you know, has a real perspective and that you should probably hear each other out and that you'll at least be uh, better informed if nothing else about their ideology and perspective by and their politics by hearing their perspective than if you don't so i think that's one you know the the intellectual curiosity is missing for people in in not exploring that but yeah. i think it also plays into how we think about technology and, and strategy as well. I think there tends to be a, a sense that, you know, technology is either good or it's bad. You know, it, something like facial recognition is is one of those technologies that I, I've been on record as, as having great quibbles with, you know, great complaints about. And, I, and the main complaint I have about it is it's an incredibly powerful technology that we absolutely don't have the appropriate protections for right now in terms of how we move through the world and, and through society and, and, and in the government systems that we have. We, we have no recourse of our physical presence, our face, our, our, our biometric identity being used in ways that we didn't intend it to be used. And so I think those kinds of things are, are where we have a, an imperative to come quickly with protections and regulations and make sure that we've got the right kinds of, of things in place. But that's, that's because I think facial recognition is an incredibly powerful technology, which means I think it has incredible power for good too. If we can put the right kinds of protections in place, we can absolutely use what's good about it to its fullest potential. So I think that's the kind of nuanced thinking that I think we need to be able to have and we need to be able to bring to our discourse, to our discussions with one another in order to be able to explore the fullness of, of what can happen and what we can bring, the resources and tools we can bring to the table in solving our human problems at scale. Yeah. And I love that example, Kate, because what you just did was you demonstrated what we're talking about is you resisted reductive thinking, meaning you said, I've got great concerns and here they are. However, there's lots of other good positive things about it that maybe outweigh those in the long run. So how do we go from here, the concerns to here? And that's where that strategic optimism comes in place. I, I love I love the way that you, that you think and you did that because I too believe that 
when we reduce things down to two options, I, you call it, you can call it binary thinking, you can mm-hmm. call it whatever you want. I think you really, it's the most basic and, and, and dare I say, juvenile way of seeing the world. We didn't evolve. We evolved from being very tribal creatures out of necessity. There was good people that took care of you and allowed you to eat food for the next day. And then there was bad people that all they wanted to do was kill you and beasts that wanted to eat you. And so you were lived in a binary world for the most part, but we don't live in that world as much anymore. And I believe that if we're able to see all the nuances and all the colors, not just blacks and whites, but the millions of colors that exist and looking at these different topics, it, that's where creativity comes from. And solving some of these issues. You can't be creative when you have reductive thinking. It's just, you know, you we get what we've seen very obviously recently. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think this is where the, I come back to, you know, at the beginning of the conversation when I mentioned my childhood interest in meaning, you know, learning about the different terms that we would use to talk about a book, but the object is still the object. And I I think that's where reductive thinking, uh, where this idea of re- resisting reductive thinking comes from to me, because I recognize that there is there is still truth in the idea that the book exists, whatever label you use to call it. And, and there's, there's still a way to, re- to recognize that your kniga is my book, is, you know, this other person's libra or libro or whatever. And, and we all need to be able to, to see the validity and, and the potential for all of those things to be true at the same time. And I think if we can do that, if we can train our minds to recognize the potential and power of multiple truths, of multiple things being able to be true, the plurality of truth, I think it gives us the potential to, to approach the, the, the challenges of our age with a brand new sort of elasticity and a new way of, of, of you know, some, some real potential to, to solve these problems in unprecedented ways. You know, I, I think the tribalism example is a, is a compelling one, but, or, you know, thinking about us as having descended from that. But I think one of the things that is, again, still true for humanity is that we have the capacity for meaning and for reasoning Absolutely. And, and that we are able to do things like understand, you know, kind of intuition and, and, and have empathy for what someone else might be going through. And so, yeah, creativity absolutely comes into play here, but I think we, we have to allow ourselves to become more fully what we are, which is, you know, these wonderful human beings who have these great superpowers of being able to understand what matters, what's going to matter, how's that, how empathy and adaptation plays into that. How do we, you know, sort of prepare for change? How do we deal with change when it comes? We have so many skills that are just, you know, sort of part and parcel of how our brains are wired. And I, we, we don't, we don't lean into them nearly as much as we could. So that's one thing I'm really hoping to develop over, you know, with this book and over the next few years of my work is to bring more tools to the foreground of how humans can really lean into what we already have as tools. That's great. Winding this down, we've got a few minutes left. I want to kind of segue into my favorite topics, which you have a whole section in your book about, and it's about empathy and adaption. And I, I think it's a it's a great it's great that we talked about resisting reductive thinking because yeah. I don't think you can expand 
your view and resist reductive, reductive thinking without having empathy and adaption. Right. I, I just right. think you can't. And one of the things that, that I've talked about on the podcast in the past is that empathy doesn't just is not just something we can turn on and off. It's something that we have to actively engage to seek and to see things from other perspectives. But I would also say that empathy comes from our own journeys. We then can go to another person and be vulnerable. And in that vulnerability, give them the gift to be vulnerable back. Most human beings want the basic same things how we get there, how we may have been brought up, how we may view those things may be very different. We all want to, to live a positive, free life. We want to our kids to be taken care of. Our, we want to love. We want to have a roof over our head. We want to breathe clean air and drink pure water. And we want our the, the generations after us to do the same, all those things that we could go on and on about. But talk to me about empathy and how that has to be a central core to, to so many of, so much of what you're talking about. Yeah, I think it, some of the things you said are, are wonderful and profound. The, the idea of bringing vulnerability into it is a really good observation. You know, for me, empathy is a, it's a tool of, of relating and understanding that I, I like to say empathy is predictive and adaptation is reactive or it's proactive and, and, and adaptation is reactive that there's a way that you can use the tools of empathy to be able to kind of anticipate what might matter to someone else. Mm. And then, you know, based on what you learn, you know, kind of <clears throat> being able to, to, to gauge whether, you know, you had, you were right or whether you had the right intuition about what ma would matter to someone and you can adapt, you can always adapt and, and become a more evolved person because you learned about mm. what mattered to people. I think this all boils down again, you know, it's always going to, for me, boil back down to meaning. I, I think about meaning not only as that, that kind of packet of, of what you're trying to communicate in language, but then, you know, you think about things like relevance or you think about patterns or purpose or significance or truth or all of these different kind of layers that, that we really are <clears throat> talking about when we talk about meaning that, that we, we're implying different things and existential and cosmic, you know, being kind of the kind of biggest picture, what's it all about and why are we here? But all of those different ways of thinking about meaning are always about what matters. And, and meaning is a very personal mm. kind of uh, equation. Like we get to decide our own meaning that we impose on the world, but that we also, in order to have most meaningful connections with, with people, we have to be able to align what matters to us with what matters to other people. And that's where, you know, this work applies to business so that business leaders and marketers and strategists can think about what it is that matters to a business, to an organization, and what matters to the people they're trying to serve, that they're trying to create relationships with, and how can they create the most aligned relationship and, and use data and technology to amplify and accelerate that alignment and, and bring that more fully to, to scale. But, but certainly on a, on a human, on a personal level, it matters too, that we were able to relate to people around us and, and read about news stories, even, you know, the people that aren't necessarily around us, but are experiencing something 4,000 miles away, that we can still be able to have some empathy based on the idea, what is it about this situation that matters to them? Like, how would this feel if I were in that situation? What would matter to me about that situation? 
Mm. And I think if we're always bringing it back to to that kind of frame, it becomes a very useful um, model for being able to understand how to create deeper connections, more profound connections with people. And that can be important for just having valid friendships and relationships. It can, it can also be important for creating successful businesses. So I think for all, all of way across the, uh, it can also be important for creating meaningful technologies, by the way, like how we actually build technology that, that has kind of designed within it, this capacity for understanding what matters in the experiences Mm. that it is facilitating. So Mm -hmm. if we're able to bring that kind of consideration of what matters to people into all of those different perspectives, then we stand to create a better world through all of those different lenses. Hmm. So well put. What's the big idea, Kate, that you want people to get and hold on to after reading your book? It's a meaty book. In a perfect world, what's the big idea that you would want people to get and hold on to? You know, I talked about the idea that dystopia versus utopia is this framing that we often you know, have when we talk about the future. And one of the reasons why that's not a useful framework is because it detaches us from the consequences of our actions. It takes us away from this kind of cause and effect of, we don't, we don't always cause futures that we live in. You know, we, there, there are externalities, cer- certainly, but we make a lot of decisions every day that affect the outcomes that we then live with. And I think it's really important to make that connection and find the connections between you know, the choices we're making today and the futures we're creating tomorrow. That concept, you know, just that connection between today and tomorrow, that's very real, that's very personal, that has a lot of power and agency for us individually, that I feel like is the, the most important big idea. And I really, I reinforce that throughout the book by this re- recurring refrain that everything is connected. Mm. Uh, and and that that is the the connectedness that I hope that people most take away from it is that we get the chance to make decisions today that actually stand to create better futures tomorrow. I, I could not agree more. And I would just simply say that I agree with you 100%. And getting to the point where you truly can see and observe that everything is connected in more ways that than we can even imagine. And maybe, maybe the goal of the whole human experience is to simply just get that. Because I find, Kate, I don't know if you've seen this, found this to be true, but some of the wisest, um, kindest, older human beings are the ones that are growing in that reality. The, the, it's, it's the wise old man that can sit on his porch and watch a butterfly and get deep meaning out of it mm-hmm. because he realized how connected he may be and we all are to that. And I know that sure. might sound trite and silly, but at the end of the day, maybe that's what it's all about. Who knows? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, when you really examine at, a, at an atomic level, at a chemical level, you know, we really are connected at that fundamental, you know, butterfly and human level. And, and so why wouldn't it be the case that we take it to that, that sort of either it's metaphysical or spiritual or whatever it is for you, whatever brings you to that sense that, you know, you're infusing your life with purpose and you're infusing your life with a sense of meaning. I think that that's so important for us to live more full human lives, to bring our fullest selves to the table. And it's important if we're bringing that, that potential to the solving of problems at, at a business level and the solving of 
problems at a technology level. So I am incredibly hopeful that people will take that imperative away from, from this book and just generally apply it in their lives. That's great. Kate, where can people find you on social media? I know on Amazon, they can Google your name. It's Kate, K-A-T-E. And then your last name is O apostrophe N-E-I-L-L. That's right. Uh, how else yes. can they find you? Yeah, I, I, I'm, Kate O'Neill is unfortunately a very common Irish name, and there are a lot of very accomplished Kate O'Neills. And I, I've actually joked about doing a podcast where I interview other Kate O'Neills only, <laughs> uh, just because there's so many interesting ones out there. But you will find me if you search for my name. But KO Insights is my business, and so you can find me there. You can also find me on, uh, say, Twitter at Kate O, where I spend a lot of time. That's awesome. Well, Kate, thank you so much for your time. Love the book. And I would encourage everyone to go to Amazon or your site, KO Insights, and, and you have other books as well. And so maybe I'll have you back and we can talk about some other content. Wonderful. All right. <laughs> That'd be great. We'll talk, talk to you soon. Thank you, Bob. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.